Inform, inspire, and evolve. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind. Join host Lindsay Simons in a friendly conversation about contributing to good as we bring together community, positivity, and energy to the business of generosity. Welcome your host, Lindsay Simons. Hello, friends. I'm so thrilled that you've joined us today, and I'm delighted to introduce my guest to you. As I was considering how to introduce him, and I was reflecting on the fact that he literally has millions of people who have seen him log into LinkedIn.com. Yes, you heard me right. Not only is he in the LinkedIn's Hall of Fame, but he's also featured in Yahoo's blogs, The Examiner, CNN Money, Reuters, Market Watch, and Wall Street Journal. So you can see why a small timer like me would want to team up with this mega influencer and spread the message. So thank you for being my guest today. Allow me to introduce to you Kevin Nichols. Kevin is the founder of Social Engineering Project, an open-based Google and Microsoft-funded social impact venture that through Stanford University addresses the lack of diversity in technology. So Kevin, thank you for joining me. Okay, so Kevin, you have an enormous influence. And you and I were talking a week ago at a conference hosted by JFK University, Stanford Institute of Philanthropy, who is also a sponsor of this episode. So we want to shout out to them and thank them. And so we met at the Stanford Institute of Philanthropy at JFK. And since then, our relationship has grown. And I just absolutely admire, respect, and adore you. And I want to ask you, what do you do with your social influence? And how does it benefit your mission focus? And how does it benefit you as a human being? Well, I'd like to say I really don't have a super great job title, so to speak. I'd like to refer to myself as just a community organizer. And so because I'm a community organizer and I share a lot of information, it allows me to build my brand by letting other people know who I am and what I do. So sometimes people walk up to me on the street and they'll say, like, you look familiar. And it's like, probably because I'm in your inbox. <laughs> because <laughs> That's I not creepy. Send... <laughs> That's totally fine. <laughs> so I send emails a lot about different events or things that are happening in the community. And now that everyone uses Google or Google Groups, you usually have your facial profile or whatever connected to your email. So a lot of people, I just start naming listservs that I belong to. I'm like, oh, yes, I'm on that. I see that. And the next thing I'll say is, wow, you always send great events. Or I, rec- I read all the stuff that you sent. And so because of that, it makes it a lot easier for people to know who I am, remember who I am. And know me for positive things because you can also have a great reputation, but it may not be a positive. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not doing like the selfies with Kylie Jenner's new makeup and posting. Uh, that. Not no. necessarily. There are some brands that I align myself to. Are um, there? Yeah, because I mean, like for example, LinkedIn. I mean, yeah, I wasn't getting paid for that, but because I was handling a lot of media stuff for them at the time when they weren't big enough to have their own marketing department handle those things. As a reward, they asked me to come to their headquarters and shoot that headshot for the homepage. So, so tell us, just back up and say, what exactly is it that you're talking about? So from 2011 to 2014, myself, which was, who was the African-American person on the, pay, on the page, <laughs> there was an Asian young lady who actually, through my network, actually knew and worked with and went to trial with when I worked at Morrison and Forrester back in the day. And two other people, a white guy and a white woman, the four of us were on the homepage. So every time you clicked on LinkedIn.com, you saw either myself or the three other people when you put your username and password in. So that was 
the landing page that they had for a while. Amazing. After that, I kind of was able to say, hey, I, I might know a little bit about this website because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've been out boy. there for a while. And then uh, allow people like allow me to teach branding and, and networking um, at different conferences and different events and stuff like that. So you said you align yourself with some brands. Why do you do that? And how does that impact your life? Well, it also kind of impacts my life in the way that if I'm a startup advisor. There are a number of companies, young companies that are growing that need advice, how to start a business, how to do marketing and branding, how to do recruit with a diversity lens attached to it, how to raise money, et cetera. And so those types of companies and those type of brands, I'm either an equity advisor for, or we have a contractual agreement where some of the referrals or the things that I do, I could receive compensation for utilizing my network in that way. Or I actually was recently approached by a buddy of mine who does licensing for my fraternity. They're able to do use our logo and mark to create t-shirts and clothing and that kind of stuff. So he's approached me and asked me to help him build his presence online if I would be willing to model custom things that he builds for me and makes for me. So I'm like, well, you know, I wouldn't normally do that, but if I have creative input on what I'm going to wear and it's branded for me, then I'm going to wear it. I'm like, why not? And why not we all make some money while doing so? So it's those kind of opportunities that just come my way that I evaluate, not all of them, but I evaluate and if it's in line with what I do and it's not going to take away from what I'm doing, then I'll do it. So translate that to those of us who have mega influences, influence, I suppose you would say, versus those who don't. So I am wondering about you have a nonprofit that you're trying to advance and you also have a consulting business that pays the bills. And how do you recommend that a listener might use their brand to actually promote what they're doing? And and how important is it to align with values? And is there a way that you are strategically doing that? Do you have a checklist or is it your instinct? Is it your network that you trust? What are some of the ways that you make decisions on who to align with brand-wise? Well, for me, I don't necessarily have a checklist. I really kind of go with my gut and what my brand is, not just what I perceive it to be, but what I feel as though it actually is. And I'll do not necessarily surveying, but I'll talk to people and ask people, well, how did you hear about me? Or what did you think when you see my name or you hear my name, et cetera? And so from that, I'm able to, to see if what I'm putting out there in the universe is actually being received the way that I intended to be received. So by doing things that are in line with me, like everything I talk about mostly is around diversity and technology. That's the space where my nonprofit is, and that's where I'm focused on. But I don't talk very much about what I do in community wellness or health. Um, I have an organization that I started called Family Wellness Group for the past five or six years where we get people outdoors, we go camping, we go hiking and all kinds of other things to get people to get physical activity, but also in a safe environment, go outdoors and be around other people, like-minded individuals. But I do stuff in politics. I do stuff in other things. And so I don't want to confuse my market by doing too many things. I don't necessarily advertise a lot of the things that I do, but there are times when I do do that. And it's for a purpose because I like to be in line with organizations and people that accentuate my brand. So for example, I recently hosted a fundraiser for uh, Cory Booker in Oakland about three weeks ago, maybe a month ago. 
And so everyone was wondering, like, why is Kevin with Corey? And like, I like his passion. I like his view of the world and his view about love. And we need a lot more of that. Now, whether or not that's going to be a winning strategy or not, I don't know. But to me, it doesn't matter. I see no negative or no downside as far as being aligned with someone like that. So it's really about evaluating those opportunities and taking advantage of them and being okay with whatever the outcome is, if it's in line with what you think you want to do. Mm, Yeah, I'm really interested in understanding what resonates with you in terms of Cory Booker's perspective of the world and spreading love. This podcast is all about creating community for good. So how do we take the overwhelming amount of saturation in terms of emails that we get, pop-ups from texts, from social media, online dating, everything that we're all inundated with. I was just shopping the other day and the saleswoman left her phone open and I saw a text exchange between a friend and her while she was on the job. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's no connection here. She's just really multitasking all the time. What is it that is resonating to you about that message or how are you spreading the love or creating community? And what are you seeing out there that's being done well that we can take to take the social media, the technology, and bring it into the human experience. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, being a person connected to social media and the outside world that way, it is hard for even me to put my phone down or to unplug. But what I do, that's probably why Family Wellness Group and other opportunities where I'm in a place where there's no cell coverage, Mm -hmm. I'm forced to to plug at different times. And I can't send a text message or get a message. And so those are for three hours or something on a Saturday. That's where I'm intentional about being mindful of where I am, what I'm doing, and recharging while I'm there. Also, as you know, since you came up and led a yoga workshop for me, I also, one of the programs that I do do, I take around 75 to 100 students camping every year and they have to unplug. Their devices won't work when they're out there. And Yeah, you said, hey, you better not run down the battery because it's about to go. Turn it <laughs> off now. <laughs> That's punishment right there. I hear some, <laughs> some parents, they don't take the phones away when kids get in trouble. They just take the battery. Yeah. <laughs> they take the chargers from it and remove all the chargers. It's more painful and punishing to see your phone get to 1% and then shut off, and then you're done. Or turn the Wi-Fi off, or turn other things that make things work. Those are ways that I deliberately try to unplug and focus Literally. on the people that I'm with. Mm-hmm. I also do use the technology in a different way. Whenever I travel, I typically search in current city for all of my friends on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And then when I'm going to that town, I'll ask for recommendations of where I should eat because I'm, I'm a foodie, so I like to yes. eat really good food. Yes. And then what I'll do is I will pick the best restaurant that can accommodate people, and then I will have dinner. I'll say I'm going to have dinner from like 7 to 9, and then I'll put the bat sign is what I call it out, <laughs> and I'll say, look, from 7 to 9, I'm going to be at so-and-so place. Come by if you can. And so there'll be people that you've received LinkedIn requests from that you've never really met in person, but you've accepted the request. You don't know them. You're not going to have coffee and tea or anything like that with everyone that you know in a city. So I do that pretty much, especially when I'm there for a significant period of time or I'm there solo. I don't usually do that when I'm with family or my wife. But when I'm there by myself, I'll say, hey, come out. And like 15 or 20 people will show up and I'll get to hang out with them. I'll get to meet new people. 
they'll also get to meet people. The downside of that is that they become friends and I get to see it on Facebook that they're running marathons together and hanging <laughs> out and going to baby showers and weddings. And I'm like, you know, like, wait a minute, like you're my friend. Like I didn't get invited to run a marathon with you. And I started getting all a little in my feelings and a little, feel some kind of way about it. But it's good to see, but it happens all the time. And my friends know they're going to meet cool people when they come and hang out with me when I'm in town. You're an awesome connector. And that's something I really admire about you. And, and you do create community wherever you go. You don't just talk about it, but you really try to create action. And I love that you're introducing people with like-minded interests or work that they're trying to advance or shared interests in great food and running, whatever it may be. I think that it's very important for us to really consider how are we feeding our own spirits, but also feeding each other in order to be a good steward of a community. And I neglected to mention this, but that's kind of how my relationship with LinkedIn started. Okay. Two of the oldest groups on LinkedIn. The day LinkedIn group started, I created two groups. So <laughs> wow. I you were an early adopter, to say the least. I created the Bay Area Black Professionals group, which consists primarily of you know African-American professionals in the Bay Area. And then I have the Downtown San Francisco Networking Group, which wasn't intentional, but it happened to be just a lot of my European and, and Asian folks that work in San Francisco. And so during that time when I created these organizations, I had small kids. I wasn't hanging out after work, et cetera, but I wanted to have the ability to network with people during the daytime in San Francisco primarily. So I started these groups. I created two events. One was called Morning Cup of Java. So in the morning on the third Friday of every month, I'd have like a business networking meeting where people would come, talk about, they'd introduce themselves. They'd talk about what they do for a living. And if they're not doing what they want to do for a living, they'd talk about what they want to do. And then they'd tell the group what a good referral for them was. And then the meeting was over. So So how somebody could be helpful. So they said, here's who I am. Here's how you can be helpful to me. Exactly. And how long was that meeting? About an hour. So for 20, 25, they had about two minutes to do that. The meeting was over. And then after the meeting was over, everyone exchanged business cards with who they had a referral for or where there might be synergy. And so when the economy tanked in 09, that's when... LinkedIn found out that I did a LinkedIn post and said a lot of the people that were coming to our monthly meeting had lost their job and they were going on three and four interviews. Mm-hmm. They weren't getting offers. So I wanted to put together a conference that dealt with the intangibles like networking and other things because resume was good if you're getting interviews. It's really about something that's not happening during the interview process. Updating my status, a friend of mine who ran was dean of students at Golden Gate University now a board member of my organization, a good friend of mine from college, said, I'll host it at Golden Gate and I'll sponsor it. And then LinkedIn reached out to me and said, well, hey, we heard you put together a conference for job seekers. Would you like to write a blog post about it? Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not really a blogger, but you know, if you want me to write one, I will. And then after I wrote that, I was like, oh, CNN called. They'd like to talk to someone about, would you like, oh, well then. So before <laughs> I know it, I was getting all these news outlet calls because of that blog post. But it all started because this group, and I tried to keep it going, but A, I need millennials to take over. I don't have the bandwidth. And B, the economy is really good right now. So a lot of people aren't networking like they used to in order to find jobs. But that's kind of what I do. And at that meeting, everyone was able to facilitate introductions to people that they knew that people in that room needed. So that's the kind of community that I try to build and try to be a part of. I love that. I think that's certainly a model that can be taken away. So, you know, as a takeaway for our listeners. 
also in alignment with this podcast, the goal is to pull back the curtain on individuals like yourself who are part of the ecosystem of the nonprofit space or the social impact space, whether you're for profit or not. And you're an executive director of a nonprofit. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And I'd love to hear if you wouldn't mind transitioning into tying in how does technology impact philanthropy? And how have you seen that with your organization, The Social Engineer? Yes. Well, so now that was a part that was a learning curve for me because Mm. I am underutilizing the technology in the philanthropic space. So a lot of people are talking about using platforms that were keeping track of donors, that are keeping track of raising money, crowdfunding, MailChimp, things like that for newsletters. I mean, there are some things that I've been using and I know of because I'm a marketer, but there are other things that are unique to the philanthropic space that I wasn't aware of. Also, getting access to databases, finding out who are high net worth individuals, who may, what kinds of interests they have, how do you find them, solicit them, etc. There's a lot of technology that goes into it and a necessary evil where you it kind of pays to play. So you've got to have some revenue in order to be able to afford to buy the software and user subscriptions, et cetera. There's a lot that goes into it that I feel like I'm still learning. And I'm trying to use my sales background to kind of see how that will work in the nonprofit mm-hmm. sector. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly a challenge to figure out how to speak to the masses. And what I've learned is instead of trying to touch everyone, focus on a small group. So it's figure out who truly aligns with you. The Golden Triangle Fundraising that I always refer back to is the access. So you do have access to them. So you might because you have this tremendous social media network, but are they going to respond to you if you reach out as opposed to they're just following you passively? Affinity, do they have a natural connection or liking for what you're doing in your nonprofit? Is there something that really speaks to the mission that they themselves as the philanthropists are trying to do and that you are helping them to do? So how can you help them to achieve their mission? So it's access, affinity, and then ability. So it's focusing and prioritizing the folks who have the ability to move the needle when the time is right. The best structure in my experience has been to focus on a very few, very deeply and committed individuals with that ability to give at a high level. And they have that natural connection, that affinity. And then moving into the crowdsourcing and the masses. So you might want to post something on social media when if you're in a campaign or you've got you know, a goal, you might wait until 5 to 15% of your full goal is achieved before you post it publicly. And then all of the other funds that you're trying to raise, that 85 to 95% is done behind the scenes with a few very dedicated and caring individuals who can move the needle for you. Mm-hmm. Those are great tips. And I definitely think that having people on board and having an affinity for your organization is definitely going to take you further and giving them calls to action. Like, you know, if you can't write a check, forward this or reshare this, et cetera. The more people that see it, the better. And then lastly, just the power of story. I think that sometimes when you post something that doesn't have a connection or doesn't have anything visual that they can see and latch onto, it's kind of hard to get just the words off of a post. And so lately, I've been using video and doing other things where I've been able to engage the audience in a much more compelling way that actually gets them to engage and and respond to the call to action that I have. So what does that mean? Are you following one student or how are you creating story 
It kind of depends. What I've been doing, I have had an incident where I did focus on us, but I did have a student a few years ago who came to my first science in a city camp at Stanford. And since then, he was diagnosed with leukemia. And so he wasn't able to go the next year. He was a fifth grader, so he could have come the second year. He was in the hospital. So that second year, I came to Children's Hospital and brought him all the swag and things that he missed What if he would have gotten when he went to school. And then the following year, he came back cancer-free. It was a student. story was pretty amazing, pretty compelling. And his mom allowed me to tell that story. But it was was significant to me. And so it was kind of easy to make the story out there. But um, that and then just kind of highlighting, you can say, yeah, he takes 100 kids camping, you know, and they learn mindfulness and yoga and all this other stuff. It's one thing to say it, and there's another thing to see it. And so if you're able to demonstrate what your work does and then have a student or someone talk about the experience and what it felt like or read the survey responses or the essays that they wrote to go to the camp, all those things are pretty compelling. There are a lot of different data points where you can use to show the impact of the work that you're doing. Yeah. So tying impact data metrics into a humanized story for the well-rounded approach. So this is great. How do you plan on using this for your end of year giving solicitations? Are you doing campaigns? Are you doing email blasts? Are you doing videos? What are you doing? The end of year is so saturated, but it is the time when people feel compelled to give. So how are you activating this time of year? I'm going to do all the above. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Do you have a sequence or how do you manage Uh, all the moving pieces? I kind of feel everything that I do, pretty much I run through myself of how I would want it or how I would feel if. That's my gauge. So the people that have rocked with me who've already written a check and invested in our organization, volunteered, et cetera, I have a distribution list of those individuals. And those individuals, I feel, should get information first. And so whether it's the newsletter, whether it's the video I create, whatever, they should have access and exposure to it first because that they are already shown and are committed to have, being privy to that information. Then I plan to do our social media strategy, getting it out on all of our platforms. And then I plan to take it a step further. I'm not going to be able to do it this year, but next year I plan to do something around the holidays around it. But I'm planning not a gala, but as close to a gala as possible in the spring. So I'm going to use this also as a precursor to that. I think it's going to be amazing. I'm thinking about a law firm, doing it at a law firm in San Francisco. But if that doesn't work out, I will do it at my office at Impact Hub Oakland. And Mm -hmm. I've got some pretty heavy hitter people who have books come that just came out now that the dates were, were really great, like some feature folks there which will make it a very nice and exclusive type of event um, that will lead to a gala and that kind of stuff in the future. So it's really a strategy to get the word out about us, hopefully raise some money into the year. But the bigger focus is to say, hey, we're here and this is coming. Mm-hmm. I just want to underscore the strategy of having some influencers at an event that may have something that they themselves want to promote. So you just said book signings and other agendas that they're promoting. So that circles back to the beginning of our conversation around cross-promotion and how that can advance the mission that you're striving towards by bringing people in because there are influencers that folks are interested in seeing 
and then they right. want to learn more about what you're doing. The thing is, it's like, if they don't have anything going on, they're less inclined to do something. Right. If they're selling something too, some of them are actually learning from me. Uh-huh. So it's like, how do you put together an event? How do you... Hey, you we know, all are. That's why we're on this podcast. Well, I don't know about <laughs> all that. But what I will say is that I've, this is my first event. I've been throwing uh-huh. events since fourth grade. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm like, well, great. Well, listen, that's how we'll, it'll be a win-win. If the dates work, it'll be a game changer for us putting us on the map in, in a different way. We've gotten some good success. We're going to celebrate our fourth year early Congratulations. Next year. Thank you. So it's been a labor of love, but I think that people are finally getting the word out of the message that we're here and what we're doing is really impactful. So the next stage is I'm actually fundraising now because one of my staff from the camping conference is graduating this year and mm-hmm. had set up a call with me and I thought I was going to be giving her some advice and making some phone calls or emails to get her a job. But she told me she wants to work for me. So I don't know. <laughs> so I was like, but oh. Like, but then I was like, no pressure, you know. No pressure. You got to <laughs> find some money to pay her, huh? Right. That's a great problem to have. Yeah. So there's a space that I need filled. Yeah. And she's a statistics major. And a lot of the stuff she brings to the table, she can do. And so she would learn a lot. I think it would be a really great experience for her. And this is the kind of work she says she wants to do. So I kind of felt like, oh, I can't tell her no. You know, so now it's like I have to go out here and make it happen. You'll be able to scale your work at the social engineer by having another set of hands who can expedite the work. It sounds like with right. some more critical thinking and with her experience and with her skills that you might be able to advance the work. So seems like a good case for support to solicit for funding. Yeah. And it's also what better to have someone who's been a part of the program to be on. Yes. I look at it. This is what I get to do. Yeah. So it's not, it's not what I have to do. It's what I get to do. And yes. I'm a person to do that. So I'll make that happen. And that's how things will go. Well, we will have in our show notes, we'll have some of the key points from the conversation today. And we'll be sure to include the website in case anybody wants to help fund this new hire and whatever else is would be helpful to you, Kevin. I don't know that we've done a plug. Can you just give an elevator pitch for 30 seconds of what the Social Engineer Project is? Well, yes. It's a partnership that we have with Stanford University. We're designed to address the lack of diversity in the tech industry through pipeline programs for underrepresented students of color. And that's a fancy title to just say that a buddy of mine from high school is a professor at Stanford. We decided we wanted to give back and get more young people interested in the things that we were interested in when we were younger. So that's what we are. We put on programs to get kids to fall in love with STEM. Mm. It's just that simple. We think that black and brown kids particularly are discouraged to go into math and science at younger ages. They're told that they can't do it. It's hard, et cetera. And they're unable to relate to the curriculum in a book that has a lot of numbers and things in it. But if they can connect to the actual work in the book to something physical and reality they can see, then from a culturally relevant perspective, they're able to latch on and learn that this formula for a derivative is actually no more than a quarterback throwing a ball 50 yards down for a receiver to catch. So if you can do those things and visualize them, you'll be successful. Those are the kinds of things that we hope to motivate and inspire students to be able to pursue 
when they go to college and major in something STEM so they can work in the tech industry and afford to be able to buy a house and live here in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something that so many of us struggle with. Exactly. It's good work you're doing, Kevin. And I'm so honored that you joined us today. And I'm delighted to be able to promote the work that you do. And I appreciate your promotion of this podcast too, just by sheer being here. So it's a testament to how network works. And hopefully what we can do together is shed light on the different perspectives of the ecosystem of philanthropy and nonprofit impact space. And you're doing wonderful work. And I'm so honored to know you. Is there a shout out to one person or one organization that you would want to make at this time? Just say, hey, this is somebody doing great work and check them out. This is my business partner. Well, other than my wife, of course. My business partner, Dr. Brian Brown, is doing some amazing work at Stanford. He just released a book called Science in the City. Okay. And it's it's available. And we have free resources on scienceinthecity.stanford.edu for school teachers and folks like that to be able to, to use our curriculum for their everyday work at school. But shout out, go buy the book. You heard it first from Kevin. Yes. And that's a shout out. Okay. I love it. And how can folks find you and what can they do to help you or the social engineer project? It's easier to find me on our website, www.thesocialengineer.org. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. Um, yeah, not hard to find. Hard. <laughs> Just look for the L in my name. There's a few Kevin Nichols out there. So say that. So it's Kevin L. Nichols. Yes. N-I-C-H-O-L-S. Okay. And... You know, those are the easiest way to connect with me. And also, in the, if you send me a LinkedIn request, just let me know you listen to this podcast so that I know who you are and why we're connecting. Okay, great. And I just want to thank again our sponsors. So this episode is sponsored by the Stanford Institute of Philanthropy at JFK University, John F. Kennedy University here in the East Bay. And to learn more about what they're doing, the training programs that I'm part of, and so are you, Kevin. It supports nonprofits and fundraisers alike visit jfk.edu backslash SIP. That's jfk.edu backslash SIP. Thank you all and have a great day. With this latest valuable episode, we'd love to thank you for joining us on the Creating Community for Good podcast. If you found today's show valuable, simply visit our website, creatingcommunityforgood.com to leave a review as well as to get access to additional resources and relevant links from this show. Stay tuned for more episodes.